And now you are an artist. Here's your crown. Like magic. Welcome to Making It at an Opera, a podcast about what it really means to find your voice and use it. I'm your host, Gwendolyn Kuhlman. Hey, friends. Just a reminder off the bat that if you like this podcast, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I'm so glad to have Dr. Dana Lynn Varga join the podcast today. She's truly a pioneer in this conversation about what it really means to make it in opera. She's the kind of person who has been moving at the edges of my awareness, shaping my thinking around this issue for a long time without me even understanding it was her doing it. I first encountered her work when two mutual singer friends started explaining how they met. They described it as a workshop they went to so they could recover from young artists' programs. I was intrigued. At the time, I had been living in Berlin, working in theaters as a chorister, not actually understanding what the young artist system was like in America. I thought it was interesting that one might need to recover from it. After moving to America, another friend invited me to join the Empowered Singers Facebook group, and it rang a bell. The group and its conversations landed differently after two years of trying to make it in America and finally understanding the futility and senselessness of the concept. The conversations she helps guide in her Facebook group, the public conversations she holds with other creators in the industry, as well as the in-depth reporting she has done both on her own and with the middle-class artist, have been eye-opening for me and so many other singers, all of us waking up to the reality that the industry pipeline is a fallacy, that there are so many ways to make both beautiful art and lives we can love, that the opera industry, as we have inherited it, is working neither for the artists nor for the art, and the most effective step to change that is to empower the artists. She also walks her talk, constantly balancing a busy career as a performer, career coach, founder and CEO of The Empowered Musician, and founder and artistic director of Mass Opera. She has served on the voice faculties of the University of Massachusetts Amherst, the New England Conservatory Preparatory School, and the Boston University Tanglewood Institute. Dana regularly presents vocal masterclasses, as well as classes on business and entrepreneurship for singers all over the East Coast, and regularly publishes articles meant to empower performers to take the reins in our industry. Yeah, so, Dr. Dana Lynn Varga, welcome to Making It an Opera. Thank you. I would love to hear your story to start out with about how you got into opera, and then eventually how you started to see this pipeline fallacy. Yeah, sure. Uh, Let's see. Well, I was, I started singing um, when I was 13. I was a cellist before that, and 
I went to the local musical theater teacher and she taught me as best she could and and I tried, but it wasn't my thing. And so a couple years in, she sent me to uh, an opera teacher, or that's what she called her back then, which really just meant someone who focused more on classical technique. Um, and I fell in love with it. You know, I just, I knew that that was my thing. And I, I sang at church uh, in a Presbyterian church choir and did some solos there, did some solos in school. And, um, you know, got into all, all the all state kind of all Eastern choir stuff. And I just loved all of that. Um, and yeah, so my, my second teacher really introduced me to to classical music. And of course I sang totally inappropriate repertoire that was too big for me as like a 15 year old, but that, whatever, it, it is what it is. <laughs> and um, I was never really considering a career as a performer. And I think part of that was out of fear. And part of it was just that I, I didn't know that I was good enough for that at the time. And I wasn't really. Um, and so I applied to college for psychology uh, and changed my mind freshman year and decided to change into music ed. And so I did my degree in music education. I started my degree in music education at UMass Amherst. Um, and then about halfway through that, uh, I started doing observations in the classroom and I was like, oh, hell no. <laughs> so, um, and so then came the next pivot. Um, and P.S., while I was doing all of this, I maintained a minor in psychology, which I think came in really handy as a voice teacher, as a career coach, as a performer. Mm -hmm. um, so learned a lot about psychology through the six or seven courses that I took and pivoted to a performance degree, had no idea what I was doing and uh, was scared the whole time. But I just went for it. Um, At what point I, was that then? When was you like junior year, junior okay. year of college, yeah. And I was also uh, very interested in conducting. So I was sort of splitting. I've always had so many interests. I mean, you can see that just by reading any of my bios, right? And I've always struggled with balancing all the things that I love and want to do, and um, which I think is a very common thing for many people. And, and at that time, I was trying to decide between pursuing a career in singing and pursuing a career as a choral conductor. And so uh, I did a weird thing that I think worked out pretty well. Senior year, I applied to half my grad schools for choral conducting and half of them for vocal performance and decided to just see where the cards fell. Mm. And, and when I was admitted to the New England Conservatory, I, at that time, knowing very little and never having someone like me uh, in existence to, to say all the things, um, I was just, starry-eyed about it. I mean, I practically fell over on my porch when I opened the thing. Um, and it didn't matter the other schools I got into. It didn't matter the scholarships. I just saw that I had gotten into my REACH school, right, because of this big name. And, and, I, and I love Boston. I always have. I'm from New York, but I've always had a thing for Boston. Mm -hmm. um, I'm now an official Bostonian of many years. But uh, so I, I just you know, signed my life away. I was like, take all my money because, you know, this is, this is an important place to go. And I had a very average experience there. Um, could have been worse, could have been better. Uh, 
you know, and did all the opera classes and learned about the five aria package and how to stage my arias and what young artist programs are and how we become opera singers. And like most people, um, so by the way, this is 2003 at this point that I started at New England Conservatory um, and I was only 21, so I didn't know very much. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, it was there that I was prescribed the pipeline, like everyone is, right? Was prescribed the idea that you go to undergrad for voice, grad school for voice, directly to these young artist apprenticeship programs, and then, um, and you do competitions as well. And then through those things, you get picked up by managers, and then you get, you know, sort of placed into your career as a full-time opera singer. And that is just how it works. Done, mm. done, done. Now, granted. And now you are yeah. an artist. Here's your crown. Like magic. Um, so that was very much prescribed there because, you know, it was pretty old school at that point. Um, mm -hmm. That being said, you know, in 2003, that system was certainly working better than it's working now. Um, mm -hmm. So there was a good, a, a good percentage of my colleagues in that, pro in that program did follow that path, at least to some degree. Um, mm -hmm many followed the pipeline only to become disillusioned with the industry or you know family life took over or weren't wasn't st stable enough or didn't love traveling so but but a lot of them did go into the pipeline as prescribed um so you know in that way it wasn't as broken as it is now but it, but you know we're talking a, a matter of percentages of, of success rates in this prescription and it's never been a very high number and then at that time it was never clear like well what happens to those people for whom it doesn't work what happens now there be dragons yeah. <laughs> that's always the feeling I had like they just drop off into into nothingness into the abyss and into the bitter um feeling like a failure, feeling ashamed, jealous of everyone else, questioning their own choices, abyss of doom. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so more on that later, but <laughs> I did what I was told because I've always been a straight A student. So, uh, you know, I, I went to some small pay to sing uh, the first summer, which was 04. And then the next summer I went to the Brevard Music Center, which I actually really loved. And I met a lot of my longtime friends there, got some role experience, started to finally learn how to move on stage, got to see what it was like to be in a festival situation where there are eight shows going up in a summer. Um, you know, living conditions notwithstanding, which we won't get into. And then, um, and you know, the following year, 2006, was a very frustrating year for me. It was a year where I was almost there, you know, like I was in the, I was in the regional finals for the Met competition, and I was in the callbacks for Santa Fe, the callbacks for Glimmerglass, the callbacks for Marilla, like in this almost place, right? Mm. But like, ultimately, at that time, it was a little, the feedback was a little like, we don't really understand your Fach, so we don't know what to do with you kind of thing. Um, which, you know, caused me my sort of first seeds of disillusionment, questioning. Um, I spent that summer of 06 uh, in a very funny place called Quisasana serving, like serving as a dining room, uh, serve, as a server during the day and then performing opera at night. It's like dirty dancing. 
<laughs> it's um, the same place. So you're serving and performing there. Yep. It's like a oh, resort. Yeah. yeah. And the artists do, do two jobs. It was crazy, but, mm-hmm. but fun. And we made a lot of money. So there's that, but that was a frustrating year for me. Um, and then things picked up a little after that. I, I got into Caramore, which is now called Teatro Nuovo. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that in 07. I did Port Opera in Maine, which is now called Opera Maine, by the way, in 08. And back to Caramore for main stage in 09 at the second level young artist thing. So, you know, I did the thing where you go from pay to sing to like, maybe you're going somewhere on scholarship or maybe it's no fee, no pay. And then you start going to paid ones and they like where they pay you and, you know, working my way up the ranks. But by the time 2009 came along um, and I had done four or five of these things, um, I had discovered oratorio Mm. and uh, through my church job, uh, I had discovered oratorio and how much I love singing it. And I had also founded my opera company at that time in 08. Um, and I was deeply steeped in the ideas of choose your own adventure, create the opportunities you don't see happening in the world. And there are many different ways to do this sort of. Mm-hmm. So this, this idea that there are other ways to do the thing became clear to me really in that 07 to 09 time period. And that's where things changed for me. Was there like a big, was there kind of a watershed moment or was it just gradually over these, what it would have been about five, six, seven, seven years or so where you were doing these different programs where you were just kind of gradually like, wait, maybe I can do, maybe I can make this, maybe I can make what I want to make. Yeah, I mean, it, I wouldn't say there was an aha moment. I will say that one thing that happened probably around 07, 08 was that I realized I really don't like to travel very much. Mm. Um, I don't, you know, I, I don't sleep well and I get very anxious and uh, I don't like unfamiliar beds and I have back problems and I just like find the whole thing to be a little stressful. And I've never been one of those people who wants to like travel the world to work. I would love to travel the world for fun. Um, mm-hmm. But as I did more and more and more of these summers away, I just found not to mention the fact that like, then I had to sublet my place back home. And like, there were still expenses that need to be paid. And half the time I was lucky to break even, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, so like I was watching my credit card debt rack up um, just to let the resume build, even when I was being paid to be there. And so there was mm-hmm. there was that and there was the not loving to travel part. And there was the discovery of oratorio and how much oratorio solo opportunity there is in Boston and and the fact that, you know, they're paid pretty well for, you know, one to two rehearsals and one to two performances. That's like, one you know, get in, get out, bam, yeah. bam, bam. Um, and I had started, you know, exploring and becoming part of the local Boston opera scene more because there's a good amount of stuff going on here. It's not the most vibrant opera community. There's a lot more other types of music going on here, which is one of the reasons why um, the pivot to other things was easy because of this city that I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the founding of the opera company really was a, was a reaction to the fact that all of us just there's four major voice programs in Boston and there's so many singers here and we would just graduate. And if we weren't, you know, this 1% of people who are at these year long programs, or, or even if we were, had been at one and then we had a year where we weren't, nobody knew really what to do. And so I just mm-hmm. saw a real lack of opportunity, especially for female singers. 
uh, given the numbers of female singers who are graduating with voice degrees versus men and decided to do something about it. And so um, I just started the company with a real gender parity mission in mind from the very beginning. And over 14 years, we've had uh, approximately 70% of the roles be female roles, wow. um, which is the opposite percentage of the like that you'll find overall in the opera industry in the States. So yeah, so I wouldn't say there was a specific aha moment. It was a lot of little things, you know, and I think the, the other the other piece of it is that I was teaching a lot privately discovering how much of an entrepreneur I am in that way. Um, mm -hmm. You know, like I would start, I started teaching at a community music school and then a year in was like, why am I making $35 an hour doing this? I could be making $65 an hour doing this. And then once and I knew that- They're paying 65 yeah. anyway. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I had that aha moment, set up my own private studio, raised the rate every single year. Nobody batted an eyelash, making twice as much. And then every time I would get an opera gig, uh, all the rearranging of the teaching, which I happen to really love, and I don't think anyone should teach voice who doesn't love it because like leave those poor babies alone. Um, <laughs> I really happen to love teaching as much as singing, which is maybe unique, but um, financially, it just doesn't make a lot of sense. And it especially mm -hmm. before the age of being able to teach online, which is an amazing freedom that I enjoy now. Before mm -hmm. that age, you know, it wouldn't make sense for me to go away for four or five weeks to sing a role for one to three thousand dollars, maybe when I'd be losing twice as much, you know, from the lack of teaching, things like that. It was a lot of things. But mm -hmm. I just said, what are, what are my values? What do I want? How do I want to feel? What what is um, going to serve me? And then I started to really make changes and, and up my entrepreneurship skills and, um, and heavy duty start pursuing the oratorio scene more. Um, that doesn't mean that I stopped singing opera. I never stopped singing opera. I've been singing opera this whole time. Uh, sometimes I sing one role a year. Sometimes I'm in six or seven productions a year. It really depends. Mm -hmm. but, but I did start to really shift my focus to more um, concert work, yeah, which I think, is my specialty now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about how, like, what was your change? How did you feel differently as an artist when you're showing up for these gigs in oratorio and in opera and you have, you have chosen this, like you have a path now that you're on that you chose and you kind of painted for yourself where you said, look, I've asked myself like these questions and I have the answers and I'm not here to, I'm not here for anybody's validation. I'm just here to do the job and make some art. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a great question. I love it. Nobody's ever asked me that before. I think the answer is that I was able to enjoy the process a lot more and people talk about this, enjoy the process. It's not about the product thing, but I, I don't know that a lot of people live that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, well, we and, haven't set up an, a narrative in our industry that gives any legitimacy to that sentence, you know? Sure. Yeah, totally. I agree. And so that's not to say that that was all the time. You know, there mm -hmm. are things there are, especially when you're dealing with non-union companies, there's a lot of times where you're called for something and you're not needed. And that's really frustrating. 
there's a lot of times where you don't agree with the vision or you have colleagues who are being catty. Um, we have historically had a bit of a, you know, kind of catty singer corner issue around here, which has improved a bit, I think, but, um, you know, but overall, I would say because I was choosing to be there and only choosing to be a part of things I wanted to be a part of, I wasn't doing it specifically to pad my resume. I wasn't doing it specifically to land a manager. I wasn't doing it specifically so that young artist programs would take me more seriously. I was doing it because it fit into my life and it made me happy. And I've also never relied on performing as my primary source of income because I think in general, that's not realistic, which is why I write so much about correlating careers and talk so much about correlating careers. Yeah. And I'd love to go into that. So you, during somewhere in this time, you're also getting a DMA yes. um, in uh, vocal pedagogy or I'm sorry, I didn't see where you're. Oh yeah, that's okay. I went to BU for my mm -hmm. DMA. Um, started in 09 and finished in 13 something like that I think it was like mm -hmm. okay so this is after you had your kind of realization where you started to ask yourself all the questions that you ask your clients yeah, now totally yeah yeah I did and and you know when I was asking myself all those questions in that period of time right before the doctorate I also as I mentioned just really discovered that teaching was not a a job for me it was a full-blown passion and pedagogy for that matter. I'm a big nerd. I will literally sit here with my larynx model and talk about <laughs> larynx and tongue positions for, for a, a month. But um, so I knew that I wanted to be able to take my teaching to the next level. And I was very fortunate to be able to do so without having to move away. Because a lot of people, especially now, because fast forward 10 years and the whole situation is kind of blown up. I mean, all of these situations have blown up, but mm. including the DMA situation, which I recently wrote an article about, I was fortunate to be able to get my doctorate and not owe money for it and be able to stay local and to keep doing all the things that I was doing. I kept running my opera company, I kept teaching privately, and I kept performing. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was a little crazy though, you know, a, I couldn't, it sounds bananas. It was a little bananas. I couldn't participate in the operas at BU because I was too busy with everything else. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I'd also been to like, you know, five young artist programs. So I didn't really want to be in like an aria monologue class again, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Um, Get that away from me. You know, or sit through more master classes where, like, just because the singer gets to do it a second time, whoever comes in for the master class is magically a genius. Mm. So, you know, because obviously everybody sounds better the second time. Um, so I wasn't able to participate in the operas, but it was a little wild. I would basically drive up to BU, park my car, throw some quarters in the meter, run in, take my classes, run out, and go the next thing. But I did it, and I was very fortunate in that. So, um, yeah, so check out my DMA article if you want to read about the state of trying to get a DMA as a female singer in America in this day and age. I did actually want to go in a little more into that because you talk in other interviews about your school being like the academia of the future. Mm. And I was curious if you could wave your magic wand, what would be your dream program? And I'm thinking for undergrad, but I'd also love to hear for grad and DMA, how would you, and I know you're also like working on a curriculum, so I don't want you to have to like 
reveal too much. How would you guide people through to the career and the art that exists today? Because I think I started going to school in 2003 Mm -hmm. and I very much was prepared for like the 80s and 90s market, you know? So um, I'd love to hear how you want to prepare people for this century's market. Such a great question. It's a hard one. Um, Here's what I'll say. And this has changed a lot over the years because I've learned a lot over the years. Mm. Um, But I would say overall, I think that that a lot of places get the majority of undergrad curriculum right. Right. Mm -hmm. You really need the foundational things like theory and oral skills and diction and um, studio class. I think a lot of what happens in undergrad isn't a problem. What I want to see more of in undergrad is uh, entrepreneurship, basic entrepreneurship. Uh, ideas about, I want to see more project-based learning, things where people have to create, think outside of the box and understand what creating your own opportunities means, which PS is the subject of my next article that's coming out next month. Um, Yes, it's all about creating opportunities. By the time this comes out, just go ahead and check it out because it's coming out in February. Oh God, now I really have to finish it. Ah. (laughs) Um, This is great. This is great. I needed that. Um, Yeah. So uh, that and uh, as I, as I covered in my article with Zach and Hilary Labont in uh, last year, which was all about gender disparity in the industry, you know, we basically found that over two thirds of the voice degrees graduating people are graduating female singers. Um, And so essentially the issue that you run into is that the women are paying for men's scholarships and then they're performing less while they're there because there's more of them. And then they're graduating into an industry where there's more of them who will be given less opportunity and paid less. So it's a a whole mess, right? Mm -hmm. So one really big thing that I think needs to change, it's not a curriculum change, but it's a overall change is just the way scholarships are doled out and the way that we handle numbers, right? If you're going to continue to have two thirds women, then the scholarships need to be doled out accordingly. And the number of opportunities for women needs to be adjusted throughout the program in everything from choir solos to operas, to opera scenes, to literally everything needs to be organized around the numbers since we don't, as an industry have something like Title IX. Title IX mm-hmm. being where women get similar scholarships to men for uh, for sports. So that's something I think is ethically extremely problematic around all programs, especially undergrad. Mm-hmm. Undergrad is very expensive. So um, when I hear about women graduating from academic undergraduate programs having barely sung on stage, then that's a problem, you know? Mm-hmm. But I do think a lot of the curriculum that's foundational is necessary and you can only cram so much into four years. So I would say my expertise and ideas lie more in the grad and beyond realm. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, again, more project-based learning, way more focus on entrepreneurship, not like a one semester course that you've grown your way through. And, you know, personally, I think singers need to be need to have their own entrepreneurship class separate from other musicians, or there can be a general one and then a break off one, because our industry is very different than than the industry that, you know, a collab pianist goes into or a um, flute player or a Mm -hmm. or a jazz drummer. So 
way more focused on entrepreneurship. I think career coaching as part of the curriculum, having um, programs that offer career coaching to singers and, and musicians as part of the program is important in grad school. And helping people understand what it means to create something. And I don't just mean write a piece of music. I mean, create a concert series, right? Mm -hmm. How do you pitch things? How do you do the reach outs? What does it mean to be a good colleague? Uh, what kinds of materials do you need to be on top of? How do you self-manage? We're not just, we're just not taught this stuff super well. And some places are really making an effort to up their game and mm -hmm. others are quite content to continue to teach I love how you said it, to, to continue to prepare people for the 80s and 90s industry that no longer exists. So Yeah, and it was very true. I ended up having an undergrad from South Georgia and uh, in the U.S. and then went on and had a grad degree in Berlin. And it was the same case. We had a class in music business, quote unquote, to prepare us for the industry as it had been. And I knew all of the ins and outs of the ensemble industry. During a time where ensemble houses were closing left and right. Right. Like those opportunities are dwindling and have been dwindling for years in Germany. And yet we're sitting there in our grad program being taught how to get a steady job as a soloist in an ensemble house. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is so important. I'm just over, I'm over here looking like a bobblehead doll because I'm like thinking so much about how how powerful it is also for the equity in the industry to spread out the gatekeepers. Like if we are all able to make our own art, if we're all able to put on a show and actually know how to profit from it and create an audience and, you know, get people to see it. And also then... how to self-advocate, right? That's something that we're also not taught. How do you negotiate a contract? Absolutely. You know, yeah. Things like what, how do you set your pay rates? How do you, what are you worth? You know, these are really important things that I, I meet as a career coach. I meet people from all walks of life, but consistently my sort of uh, demographic is 25 to 35 year old women who have been prescribed the, the pipeline and not had any of these needed courses or mm -hmm. learned any of this necessary knowledge who I am giving it to them for the first time. And that's not okay. So um, if I may toot the horn of the place where I work, I am on the faculty. One of my many jobs is on the faculty of the Longy School of Music of Bard College, which is not the same as Bard, which is also an awesome school. Um, we are owned by Bard, but we're in Cambridge, right by Harvard. <laughs> and it's a small school. And when I say that we have the curriculum of the future, I mean, I was ready to leave academia. I was mm. done. I was done. And then this place just sort of called me in. And there was clearly a reason for that because there's career coaching as part of the curriculum. There are tons of project-based classes and creation and expression is paramount there's a lot of emphasis for singers around the storytelling of recitals and programming, how to actually engage a community, and a lot of freedom to choose what you want to take to curate the types of things that you might want to do for a living. So you're not just following blindly a curriculum. You have a lot of options as far as what courses you take and um, what is available to you. And finally, we are doing a lot of collaborative teaching. Like we as a faculty, voice faculty recognize that 
all of us have our special strengths and there's no competition. It's just, oh, you know, so-and-so is better at this. I don't really teach belt. You should go see her. And then she can send me one of her students. And we do swaps all the time. How healthy. It is just the most healthy academic environment I've ever seen. Um, You're making me want to go back to school. Yeah. And, you know, I just, as someone who was exposed to the whole, like, Again, another article I wrote was about student, healthy student-teacher relationships. I wanted and, to talk to you about that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we can't possibly cover everything, but yeah, I'm happy to yeah. talk about it. Um, it. Just this this competition, the idea of ownership over a student, the idea of competition between studios, the idea of disparaging other teachers. I mean, why, why, and why? Those are my questions. Mm-hmm. And the great news is that singers are singers are done like we've put our foot down at this point and i think frankly i think the academic world is freaking out about it a little bit and to that i say good yeah and people ask me all the time aren't you worried you're going to advocate you're going to you know do all this advocacy work and then you're going to advocate yourself out of a job and i say i am fully prepared for that if that's Mm. what it takes for these messages to make change then I, then I accept that. I, I make a lot of money as an entrepreneur. I'll be fine. Don't worry about me. <laughs> <laughs> I see what they're saying and it kind of fits into this, into this thing I've talked to with a lot of people now about, which is this feeling that we're moving in this, in the set industry, in the set world, if you'll just call it like the classical world. And there are certain things you're allowed to say and certain things you're allowed to push at and certain things you're not allowed to push at. And maybe you'll, maybe you'll lose everything because you did. Yes. And I think that's so, it's so interesting to have that framework of thinking and have it be so common amongst people who are literally being taught how to use their voices, how to express themselves in the most honest way possible with their voices yeah and a scarcity mindset and this is how the idea of the super stable secure academic job has become so lauded but um you know but it first of all they're very rare and second of all uh there's a lot of ethical issues that go into academia actually i was taught that i should say because i don't give him enough credit that my father was a big influence in me in this way because from a young age you know i knew that he had turned down a position uh he's a bass player and a bass maker he's he's a a wonderful maker of the upright bass a luthier Mm -hmm. and um as a jazz bassist he was approached by schools to teach on faculty and he just said i can't put more of us into the world to be overworked and underpaid And, you know, that affected me for my whole life. And and I I guess I didn't realize how much until the last few years when I really started digging into this work. Yeah. Um, So it's been. Can you tell me? I'm sorry. um, I'm just really interested in you digging into this work. You said you started The Empowered Musician back in 2015 or 2016? I started it in 2016 purely as a career coaching business, and then it morphed into a more multi-layered business model um, during the pandemic when I had the time to really do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I'm interested in like how that path came to be out of your DNA, out of your teaching. Uh, you've said in other places that 
these three things that you do, this teaching, performing, and career coaching has kind of given you a bird's eye view of our industry. And uh, I'm interested in what led you into that kind of third pillar, if you will. Yeah. Well, I think there's four pillars really because the artistic directing in mass opera always had me on the other side of the table as well. So it's it's sort of Mm -hmm. completely circle in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, my experiences have been in front of the table, behind the table focused on vocal technique, behind the table focused on the whole package for like casting purposes. And then, you know, sitting across from people digging deeply into their materials, their career goals, their wants, needs, desires, their big why, etc. And the work that I that has become so important to me over the last five years, I would say, around correlating careers, gender disparity, um, academic ethics, uh, debt, um, money matters, entrepreneurship, self-advocacy, self-management, all of these things uh, just come from common themes. The common themes being that people are strapped with debt, with not enough opportunity, and Obviously, this comes from a broken system. We could get into the like large societal reasons why the system is broken, but we don't have time for that. And just really deeply thinking about what I could do to make a difference. And I think that it's still a work in progress as far as which channels reach people most immediately. I love the Empowered Singers group, but it's a Facebook group and Facebook groups come with their share of drama and, and headache, you know. Um, but it is a great way for people to get into important conversations. And I think we've made some good headway there. My articles, you know, have been pretty widely read. And and what the common theme is, is that people, A, are thankful to be seen and heard when they felt like they did something wrong, right? Mm-hmm. And that's what keeps spurring me forward to do more of this work is just the shame and the feelings of failure around things that are not the fault of the people who were really not educated properly, not given good information, not been in a good, healthy situation in the voice studio, not been properly advised about money and reality and, you know, all the things. And so I I want, with all of my work, I want to empower people to understand that there are a million ways to do this. There is room for all of us. And at the same time, it's not all sunshine and rainbows and butterflies. There's a lot of nitty gritty unpleasantness that we need to deal with in order to maintain a position in our industry, in our vocal industry in some way, largely meaning you probably will have to have some other sort of career and income stream or income streams. And It is a gig to gig economy. It is a gig to gig world for us here in the States, right? And a lot of us don't realize that. We think that we graduate and we have these, you know, we we have this beautiful voice and then work just comes. And even with a manager, most people are still having to do a lot of self-management, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of reality goggles that I think we need to put on and, and face. But at the same time, with a little bit of ingenuity and a lot of being true to yourself and your values, you can craft any path you want to um, and make money doing it and pick and choose what you want to be doing and how you want to be experiencing and sharing art 
I guess is what I would say. And the empowered musician is a career coaching business. It's also um, a studio where you can come and study that encourages, um, you know, collaborative teaching, multi-genre, etc. And it's also a place where you can read articles and, and educate yourself and become more aware of how to advocate for yourself and how to make change going forward. Mm-hmm. I love that. That was a long answer. I did my best. <laughs> it was excellent. And I was thinking about how when I was in school, there was there was none of this kind of guidance, none of this kind of like, let me kind of decode this for you and help you see what the next steps are. And a lot of times I actually depended on my teacher for that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my teacher came up in the 80s when the wall was still up and <laughs> had a lot of success in East Germany, which was wonderful. But, you know, I ended up graduating and thinking that kind of goes back to, you know, being prepared for an 80s or 90s career just thinking how interesting it is that we're in this position of having to take this career advice from people who have no idea what it's like to make a career right now. Um, Would you say within your empowered singers teachers, do you guys also like in the laundry school of music pass people from one to the other, or if somebody needs career advice and that teacher isn't, doesn't feel prepared to give the career advice, they pass them on to you or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I I think in general, a lot of people come to me to fill holes that they, you know, either can't get filled by their teachers or their teachers have suggested it. And this is all I want to say, really. It's not exactly answering your question, but here's how I'm going to answer it. As a teacher, you cannot be expected to know, know everything. That includes Mm -hmm. about vocal technique, but especially about careers, Mm because if you did come up in the 80s or 90s, or even if you came up yesterday and were a pipeliner and had a absolutely pristine, like everything worked out for you, one percent, one percenter career, um, you can't possibly be expected to to provide all the guidance necessary for a young singer. And so the only job that you as a teacher have, other than helping this singer become a better singer vocally, is to just know where to send them, right? You just need to know your resources, right? Like if I run into somebody with a tongue tie or a vocal issue, I know where to send them. If I come across someone who wants to belt, I know where to send them. If I come across someone who is looking into a career in Germany, I don't try to advise them about a career in Germany because I don't know anything about that. (laughs) (laughs) I know some basic things and I talk to a lot of people, but I'm not really qualified to talk about that. So there's people that I send them to. And I think that's really the key is no matter what, you know, as a teacher or an educator, you you don't have to feel like you have all the answers. You just need to know where to send people. Uh, There's a lot of things I don't know. That's for sure. And um, and similarly, as a, as a singer, you should not expect your mentor or your teacher to have all the answers, and you should always be looking for the most up-to-date information that resonates with you, you know, mm-hmm. and that empowers you and that gives you clear direction. Mm-hmm. I would love to kind of close out with more discussion of your collaboration with the middle-class artist. As well as if you're comfortable talking about it, you cutting off the classical singer and why you did. Um, I think in a way, the classical singer for a long time has kind of promoted this sunshine and fairy tales way of thinking. 
Mm-hmm. And the middle class artist is is this new publication that's out there that's really putting those reality goggles on that you advocate for. And it kind of seems like you stepped away from Classical Singer because of this article that they published. I'll let you go into that. And you stepped right into the middle class artist and put out those bomb like this huge article about the discrimination against women in the opera industry that I know resonated with me definitely as a mother and as a woman who has had a bit of a career in Germany I mean it it doesn't matter where you are yes yeah tell me more about those two steps so most of my articles I just publish on Empowered Musician because I prefer to just keep everything in that in that area. And when I write an article, I typically, there's been two exceptions to this, but I typically am writing it because I feel like it and because I have something to say, not because I've been asked to write something specific. Um, But the, I have to say to their credit, Classical Singer was open to me having my, having my opinions. And, uh, and they were open to these new ideas. And I was grateful to have that platform. Uh, That said, you know, it is a little old school, and I didn't align particularly well with the values. And then there was some drama that went on behind the scenes. And then there was an article that was essentially talking about what women should be wearing for auditions and performances. And there were some comments being made by someone in that article about you know, covering up arms and, you know, uh, shapewear. And like, honestly, we're just not doing that anymore. It's 2021. Get it together, people. It was Um, hilarious reading it and seeing the reaction to it in Empowered Singers Group and your commentary on it and thinking, wow, like this is what people told me in two different degree programs in two different countries. I could recite exactly what this woman said. Exactly. And that's yeah. it's amazing and wonderful to me to see that people like you and a whole like slew of people are just like, absolutely not. This is over. Yeah. And and you know what? If we say it's over, it's over. Mm. We decide we are the singers. We are the performers. We are the ones who go on stage. Mm. If we want to show our knees in an audition, then we're going to damn well show our knees. If we want to wear a pattern, we're going to wear a pattern. If a fat person wants to show their arms, they're going to show their arms. Absolutely. These are our bodies. We are human beings and we need to be representing all human beings on stage. That is not going to be an easy change. But the more we say it's over, the more it becomes true. Um, So anyway, uh, it just didn't quite align with my values anymore. So I moved on started doing more self-publishing and then Zach and I caught each other's eye. We've actually never met in person, but we're buds. And we did a couple of collaborations. The first was about, um, we called it an impossible choice. And it was about like, what do you do when you're supposed to be in one of these degree programs during COVID and go to school online and be paying all this money. Mm. Um, And then we collaborated on the big one, which was me, Zach Finkelstein and Hilary Levant, who's a wonderful writer um, who did her dissertation on gender disparity. And it was a co-collaboration between middle-class artists and the empowered musician in which I sort of served as the person who did a lot of the research on case studies and drew a lot of the through lines to the research that Zach did, where he did a lot of actual data analysis, right? Because that's his thing. He's a data analyst for, for his work. 
Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's a hole in my knowledge. I, I anecdotally know these things, but it's really helpful to have someone make a pie chart to prove it. Really helpful. Mm -hmm. So, you know. And we, validating, I'm sure. Oh, it's very validating. And, you know, there's always going to be people who don't feel like the research is good enough. And, um, you know, I'm not going to comment on that right now. But uh, we wrote this article and it was a lot about the ethics around academia, the ethics around gender disparity. Yeah, so we, we covered a lot of points in that article, I'm, I'm sure you recall, but essentially talking about how the, the bottom line is women pay way more money to get the, the degree. While they're getting the degree, they sing way less. Then they graduate out into a world where there is less opportunity and they're also paid less. And then they're sexually harassed and discriminated against. And then, especially if their mother's extra discriminated against. So it is, and, and if this is true for, for a white woman, imagine for a woman of color, right? So mm. this is at every stage of the game, a problem. And we had numbers for all those things. We had numbers to talk about how many voice and opera degrees were being awarded, approximately two thirds to women. Um, we had numbers to talk about how many operatic roles in the canon were for women versus men, uh, and mm -hmm. so on and on and on, right? And the Boston Globe picked it up and, and wrote an article about our article, so that was exciting. And I was heartened. Um, I was heartened because I heard that a bunch of opera programs at big schools, like called meetings, board members were, you know, taking notice, people were paying attention. Um, Excellent. But I feel like a lot of things got moved forward during the, the real heart of the pandemic when we were all stuck at home and chained to our computers. And then we lost a little bit of our momentum and fell a little bit back into resting on our laurels. And so I have felt a little bit worried that our fight as a group of artists is, is dwindling at this moment. And I understand why, because we're in this weird mid-COVID kind of having a life, kind of still worried all the time, kind of can perform, but not really, you know, we're in this just bizarre, awkward in-between phase. And, and I've suffered from it myself. I've been, you know, lecturing less, pitching my lectures less. And I think all of us, myself included, right now in this moment need to get our fight back on because there's still a lot of work to be done. And if and when we are able to beat this thing to a degree where we can get back to performing more normally, more mm -hmm. of the time, the last thing we want is to return to status quo. That is mm -hmm. not what we want. We want to, to enter into the new world of the classical vocal industry having learned a ton and actually integrate these changes into the academy and into the industry. That's what I hope for, but we're, we're a little stuck right now. I feel like that's my, that's, that's the temperature that I'm taking. Mm -hmm. I actually, I've been hearing very similar things um, from other artists who are kind of in this sort of activism to move mm -hmm. opera forward. And yeah. some of it is just feeling like, I'm tired. Let's just go to default. Yeah, it is. I think people are just tired and I totally get that, but we got to find a way we got to dig. Yeah. It's an interesting time to start a podcast on this subject and then hear people so who are, you are so active during the, like the shit storm of the pandemic and oh. even before, and then just see like, I had all these people behind me and now 
I'm looking around. I'm like, come on, come on, guys. Focus it up that you're doing exactly what you need to do. I mean, we need we need more and more people to raise awareness, whether it's through podcasts, articles, videos. Um, yeah, and and I think it's awesome. Yeah, we got to get this shit up on TikTok somehow. I'm just scared of TikTok. Too old for TikTok. I know. I just need to like. I need to hire some very young person to teach me how to do it. <laughs> That's what needs to happen. My 40th birthday is coming up in a few weeks, so I feel like I'm crossing over into a threshold of a whole new world, but I'm 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 here for it. Bring it on. Bring it on, man. Yeah. Um well, as a fellow mother, thank you for all that you've done to speak up for all of us. Yeah. And especially Absolutely. also as a fellow singer. And how can people keep track of you? Yeah, so um please visit The Empowered Musician at www.TheEmpoweredMusician.com. My personal website is www.DanaVarga.com. And the opera company I run is MassOpera.org. And um, we actually just did a really cool production of La Traviata with some gender bending and good gender parody that was um, a walkthrough opera where you followed the opera through a mansion. Oh, cool. Yeah, we had 18 sold out shows. It was very exciting. Awesome. So yeah, that was that was pretty cool. Um, and then um, I can be reached directly, uh, Dana at the empowered musician.com. Right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Dana. Great. Thanks for having me. And that was Dr. Dana Lynn Varga. Links to the articles we talked about, as well as all the ways to follow her work, are in our show notes. Keep up with the pod on Instagram at Making It an Opera, and support us by telling your friends, rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, and pitching some money by donating on Ko-Fi. You can find the link when you go to www.makingitanopera.com. We'll be back in two weeks. See you then. Making It an Opera is a production of Sounds Like Cool Studios with editing by me, Gwendolyn Kuhlman.